first on film and entertainment, and there is a big new musical in town. I am so excited about it because, generally speaking, what happens is that producers, well, they cut their cloth to suit, which means that, obviously, big musical get that it be made it, where we know that people are going to buy tickets, they're the ones that they invest in. And that's generally the case with musicals. So don't get me wrong, I think it's fantastic that we see Rocky Horror and, and Jersey Boys and, and all sorts of other things over and over. But it's also lovely when we haven't seen something and Groundhog Day, the musical, is what I'm talking about. Now, I suspect that because we're all of a certain age, we must have seen Groundhog Day, the movie. All of us, and I'm talking about Greg King, I'm talking about Jackie Hamilton, and I'm talking Peter Krause. Have you all seen the 1993 movie? Jackie, you? Yes, of course. Now, when you say of course, did you appreciate it at the time or you can't recall? Oh, yeah, great fun. Great fun. Okay, Peter? Yes, it was a very clever premise with Bill Murray. Mm. And it's interesting how the premise these days, the, the word Groundhog Day just is part of the lexicon, isn't it? So it's incredible how impactful an individual film like that can have. What about you, Greg, your recollection yes. of Groundhog I've seen, Day? I've seen it several times. Oh, really? nothing, changed. nothing changed this time I went and saw it. Very good, Greg. Thank you. Well, this one as a musical is on at the Princess Theatre and what a brilliant, brilliant production it is. And there's only one word to describe Tim Minchin and that's genius. This guy who, do you remember Matilda the musical? I want to see that one again. He was the man responsible for the music in that. And he, the music in, in this, Groundhog Day, helps propel the narrative. Now, you have to be particularly clever to be able to do that. It's interesting, we talked last week about the movie The Colour Purple and how the music doesn't fit in with the story. Well, this is quite the opposite. So for those people who have not seen Groundhog Day, the movie, and obviously this pertains to the musical as well, imagine living your life in an endless time loop and going nutso crazy in the process. That's what it's all about and it's based on the film which not only starred bill murray but also andy mcdowell and was directed by gregory do you remember who directed uh, no okay I'm harold, blank. harold ramus mm. now phil collins not collins phil connors is this egotistical pittsburgh television weather presenter and he's dreading his regular trip to small town america he's doing it for the fourth time specifically i love this name Punxsutawney, spelt P-U-N-X-S-U-T-A-W-N-E-Y. We have some unusual spellings of various things in this country too, but I, I, we don't have a Punxsutawney here. Anyway, that's in Pennsylvania, and that's where they celebrate Groundhog Day on February the 2nd. I don't have an explanation for this, but the opening night, the official opening night of Groundhog Day the musical at the Princess Theatre was February the 1st. I don't know why they didn't wait till the second. Anyway, the day itself, that's when a groundhog... Uh, by the way, do we know what a groundhog is? Can can you hazard a guess? Uh, is there an equivalent animal that you can sort of draw upon to tell me what a groundhog is? Any of you? Uh, no? Wombat? No. Oh, I'll, I'll call it a large squirrel. Ah. That, that's, yeah, anyway. Uh, this is a groundhog named Phil, 
I have no idea why it's named Phil, but there we go. It predicts whether they'll face six more weeks of winter or are rejuvenated with an early spring. All right, so that's what it's all about. And the townsfolk, led by the mayor, celebrate the day with a parade and a slap-up dinner. But a deeply cynical weatherman, Phil Connell, Connons, I keep on saying Collins. I, I can't help myself. Anyway, Phil Collins. in the air tonight, probably. They, my Busy rider. Yeah, excuse me. This is your thin backyard, is it, Peter uh, Krauss? You don't have walls. We, we established that some time ago. It, did you hear the motorbike running through your front yard? <laughs> oh, running through the apartment, you mean? The apartment, <laughs> yes. Unbelievable. Okay, so let's get back to Groundhog Day, the musical. So you've got Connors, who's put up the night before in this quaint bed and breakfast, wants to get in and out of the place as quickly as possible. And early on the February 2nd, He's greeted by a regular cameraman called Larry, his regular cameraman. But he has a new producer, Rita Hansen, and he treats both of them offhandedly. So he completes his segment on air and is intent on skedaddling. So problem is that against his expectations and his forecast, I might add, there's no movement in or out of Puxatawney because the place is snowed in. And to make matters worse... When he wakens the next morning and the morning after and the morning after that and so on, it's still February the 2nd. And everything, as Greg said, and I mean everything word for word, is on repeat. So Connors quickly slides into this rather dark place before he comes to realise that there's a way to make the best of a bad situation. This, the musical, has been developed and directed by Matthew Watchus, book by Danny Rubin, already mentioned music and lyrics by Tim Minchin. It is a, a ripper, a rolled gold winner. And look, I'm just in awe of Minchin's ability to keep producing such fine material. His lyrics, as I mentioned, keep the story moving. The, the numbers are ear-pleasing. They're melodic. The talent involved in the show is superb. The staging is magnificent. The dancing, including a tap routine, skillfully choreographed. And there's surprising magic at play. Now, which of you have seen or did see Harry Potter? Any of you? No? Yes. Yes, yes. yes. Right, there's a reluctance. Hang on. So there's yes from Jackie. And who was the other? Or the films. The, the stage play. No, I didn't oh. see that. No, no, no. Uh, Jackie, you saw yes, the I did. Right, okay. Yes, yes. Did you see the two-parter or the one-parter? Uh, the two-parter, and I saw it on the one day. Oh, well, okay. And do you remember one of the things that was at the that was at the Princess Theatre from Recollection, was it not? Anyway. Or oh, somewhere on top of the city there. Yeah, top of the city there, yes. Uh, anyway, and, and at the Princess, the um, one of the things about it that really stood out was the magic. D did it not? Oh, that really... Look, I've, I remember distinctly you saying that over and over again, and I thought it was, well, appropriate, but... It certainly didn't stand out for me. I was a bit disappointed by the stage show. Oh, okay. Harry oh, Potter and the Cursed Child. Totally, totally, yes. What, what it, it's called, what was it? Harry Potter and the? Cursed Child? Cursed Child. Of, it? Yes, it was. Is that right? uh, you're, you're correct. And, and you're wrong, though. Uh, you're often wrong. <laughs> you're always. so wrong. You, you couldn't be further from the truth. So totally ignore what Jackie said. The reason I'm, I'm saying that is that there's magic in this one as well. And it reminded me of the magic in Harry Potter. So 
just yeah, Jackie. I don't know what it takes to to surprise you when it comes to magic, but it's it's very special here. Like it was good, very good very, magic is good. Like <laughs> it was great magic in Harry Potter. <laughs> I saw Harry Potter three times, and I'm not a Harry Potter fan, but it was fantastic, absolutely fantastic. I'm talking about the movies. Uh, the the musical was just immeasurably better than the movies as far as I'm concerned. Anyway, nothing wrong with the movies, but this was great. So what we've got in Groundhog Day, the musical, is I I don't know whether you've heard the name Andy Carl. I suspect none of you have. Carl spelled K-A-R-L. He played Phil Connors on Broadway. He originally brought it to London's Old Vic Theatre, then played it on Broadway, then brought it back to London's Old Vic. It won him an Olivier Award. He was nominated for a Tony Award. And somebody said to me that after this Melbourne season, he's going back for another London season. He he offers up, I'm not kidding you, a musical theatre masterclass. He's got this superb range. He generates emotional resonance. What a performance. He transitions, I'm talking Andy Carl, from arrogant, mean, manipulative and dastardly to caring and sensitive in the space of two and a half hours, including interval. Phenomenal. And... Elise McCann plays Rita Hansen. Now, she's well aware of the Connor's bad boy reputation that preceded him. Uh, She's worked with him in one other setting, uh, which is unimportant. But suffice to say, she, Elise McCann, brings sensitivity and emotional intelligence to bear. And she also soars vocally in Groundhog Day, the musical, at the Princess Theatre. Ashley Rubinach leans into her role as the pretty good time girl, Nancy Taylor. Her solo at the start of the second act, both sad and endearing. Tim Wright captures the essence of Connor's nerdish, now insurance salesman, former classmate, Ned Ryerson. Connor's couldn't stand him back in the day at school. That awkwardness is evident as Ryerson continually bumps into Connor's in Puxatawney on February the 2nd. And Wright comes into his own with a moving number also in the second act. These characters, these actors are ably supported by a strong ensemble. Just to show you how strong it is, Alison White, who is a leading lady, terrific theatre. I've never seen her in a musical before, I might say. She plays a bit part in this one. She plays the owner of the Airbnb, I was going to say Airbnb, but the bed and breakfast. So anyway, uh, the... Ensemble, very, very strong. It's a delightful journey to take. And one of my favourite scenes sees a drowning Connors downing shots with a couple of local drunk hicks named Gus and Ralph. And that happens as Connors is spiralling. Now, while the trio, I'm talking about Connors, Gus and Ralph, are hilarious at the bar where the scene starts, the highly creative staging of what follows immediately thereafter is an undoubted highlight of the show. I'm not about to spoil it for you, but I should quickly add that that's one of many highlights, including, this is where the magic comes in, the disappearance and reappearance of Connors several times in succession after interval. And what greets you as you enter the Princess Theatre, and Greg, yes, I did count these, is an imposing set consisting of more than 30 television screens of various sizes. Wow, I mean, wow, that is quite something and onto them are plastered images of Phil Connors presenting the weather. So make no mistake, he's the star of this show. And what an unforgettable, thoroughly engaging, totally entertaining night of theatre, Groundhog Day the musical is for everybody except Jackie who doesn't like magic. No, Jackie, you've got to go and see this. I know, 
I know you like your musicals. This is a, an absolute superb. I mean, the laughs come thick and fast. The sediment shines through. It's slick. It's fanciful. It's fun. It's playing at the Princess Theatre until the 7th of April. That is Groundhog Day, the musical on JF. 88FM, join us, right? Not just now. Pay your 54 bucks. Become a member of JA. Go to j-air.com.au. On that note, now, have I convinced you to see it, Jackie, by the way? Oh, not necessarily, um, Alex, because if you thought that the Harry Potter stage uh, performances had amazing magic and I thought it was fairly ordinary, mm. and you think this one is amazing, what would make me think it actually is? Because I actually said to you that the actor that leads this won an Olivier Award and was nominated for a Tony. Does that not inspire you? And that Tim Minchin is a genius? Oh, Tim Minchin is like totally, that's the reason I would go. Matilda is one of my all-time all favourite. Yeah, exactly. And that's in top three, if not my top ever most, most, most enjoyable uh, stage musical. And I can't understand. Yeah, and I, so did I, and I can't understand. And it didn't have any magic in it. Thank you. I can't understand why we haven't seen it back because it's that good, right? It is that good, Matilda the Musical. And it, it had a very long run, didn't it? I can't recall. I mean, it's too, too long ago. I, I'm trying to remember when we... Maybe it'll come back. Maybe they're planning that as we speak. Well, Sunset Boulevard, which we haven't seen for ages, is uh, you know is coming back, uh, which is which is great. You know, it's exactly what you, you know, now that would interest me. That would well well okay. So uh, that would interest Peter. That would interest Peter, wouldn't it, Peter? Yes. Um, although the original film, of course, can't be topped. I think. No, Peter, Peter, pumpkin eater. You, you, you don't recognise, you do not recognise that on occasions musical theatre or theatre can absolutely outdo, absolutely no question, outdo uh, a film. It just depends on... They can work together, you know. It's not going to try and completely replicate it because it's a different medium. So, you know, go with it and just enjoy it. Mm. You might be surprised. Well, but by the way, the um, the the guys involved in Matilda, a number of them are involved in the show as well. I, I mentioned to you, for example, that Matthew Watchus is involved in. He directed Matilda the musical, so I mean, there are lots of people. I'm just looking back. If I'm not mistaken, it was only it was here in 2016. There you go. Based on my my review at the time, so it, it's usually around about the seven to ten years. It's like like doubling the price of your home, Jackie. You'd know more about that, wouldn't you? That every seven to ten years it's meant to double. Is that right? The price well, one hopes if you actually buy the right property, but it's never guaranteed. One that doesn't need renovation, Jacqueline? Just... Oh, we don't talk about renovation. <laughs> no, no, no. We, we often do, we often do off, off camera, so to speak. Okay, <laughs> let's, um, let's go from there, from talking about a musical, to talking about a few films. And um, I, I want to start with a movie that moved me greatly. And I don't usually give you much credit, Jackie, but I will give you credit for Ice Boy Sleeps because it really, oh, what a powerful 
sensitive and affecting work in, in Korean and English. I, I just thought, oh my golly. Um, so thank you, Jackie, for insisting that I see this one. I, I hope you liked it as much as I did. Firstly, let me ask you that before I go on. Oh, that's why I really wanted you to see it, Alex, and not just dismiss it as not having time because it's yeah. worth the time. Well, look, it, it's a coming-of-age legacy story, and let me give you a bit of context here. On a cold winter's night in 1960, So Young, that's the character name, played by Choi Cheong Yoon, was discovered on the steps of a temple in Korea wrapped in a blanket, and no one knew where she came from. She was moved from one orphanage to another, and when she came of age, she packed her bags, left for the city, and worked tirelessly. And one of her jobs was at a popular bar near a university, which was where she met the young student who just returned from finishing his military service. And he was the son of poor rice farmers. So young, and that man became inseparable, but his mental health deteriorated, and he suffered from schizophrenia. He was admitted, he was admitted to a psychiatric hospital. He took his own life and left behind so young and their newborn son. As the baby was born out of wedlock, by law he couldn't have citizenship. So again, so young packed her bags to start a new life in Canada where she took a job in a factory. After a narrator's introduction giving the backstory which I've just given you, Rice Boy Sleeps unfolds in a couple of time frames, 1990 and 1999. And it's so young's journey and that of her son, his name is Dong Hyun, played as a grade one student by, and I, I, I apologise if I mispronounce the name, Dong Nol Huang, and that is a 15-year-old by Ethan Huang. Both So Young and her son are headstrong. So Young is determined to provide a better life for Dong Hyun than the one she left behind. She tries to teach Dong Hyun resilience, including standing up for himself when he faces discrimination and bullying. Dong Hyung develops attitude, and it's not uncommon for the pair to clash. So Young avoids any and all questions from Dong Hyung about his father until a devastating development changes all of that. So this one, Rice Boy Sleeps, is very much a personal story for the writer, for the director, for the actor Anthony Shim. His family, Anthony Shim's family, emigrated from South Korea to Canada in 1994 when he was eight and he grew up on Vancouver Island, where he was often the only Asian child in school. He was looked at, he was treated like an alien. So he desperately tried to fit in. And these are just some of the images that Shim, the filmmaker, who's also edited this movie, I might say, captures in Rice Boy Sleeps. It's a movie of real quality and substance, naturalism at, at its core. And I, I very much believed what I was seeing unfold thanks to the striking characterizations. So young is the glue that binds the piece together. Choi Tsung Yoon plays her as generally quiet but really gutsy. You can tell just how much So Young has endured and continues to bear, always ready to face adversity. Dong Noel Kwan is a loner, cute and bewildered as the younger son, Dong Hyung, while Ethan Huang is noteworthy as a recalcitrant teen. You know, often teenagers rebel, that's what he's like here. A gentle soul in the movie is the character of Simon, who's played by the writer and director Anthony Shim, and he's faced his own challenges and takes a shine to so young. I thought the cinematography by Christopher Liu really captured the cultural divide between Canada and Korea. Also appreciated the mood-setting music by Andrew Yong-Hoon Lee. 
it moved me greatly. And no scene more than that focusing on so young in the Korean mountains towards the end of this film. It is really special, Rice Boy Sleeps, and I would highly commend it. And uh, I want to get your thoughts, Jackie. I think the final scene of Rice Boy Sleeps is mm. just masterful. It's, uh, it basically brings the entire film together and it stays with you. It's yes. so heartfelt and so strong and so quiet. And in fact, you could say that about the whole film. It's actually a lot of quiet domestic, um, you know, daily life style, um, you know, know, action's the wrong word because I'm trying to say the opposite of that. It's just a way of, the way of living. It's, you know, um, it's a story of grief and um, migrant story and coming of age and it all travels on a fairly quiet plane. But these bursts of big happenings in their lives, events, you know, tragedies that, keep coming back and so it's a, it's a film of contrasts in that way but what we really love is the characters who you can you can Id- identify with them even though you're not in their situation you it's a it's an, a sympathy and understanding and you can see how they're traveling if they're not one-dimensional characters we learn a lot about them um, they look great on the screen the cinematography especially, when they go to Korea mm. towards the mm. end of the film is, is again, it's, it's actually quite simple, but it's really, really beautiful. And that but brings it all. Contrast. It's such a contrast yeah. to Canada. And that's the point that I was making that, I mean, he's got, you've got this situation where the son has got a foot in both camps and it's interesting. He's very much trying as, to. As they have to do the migrants to fit in, mm. but also at the end, that's he needs to find the mother has to um can fit in and she knows her background but her son not knowing anything about where he came from his cultural heritage except by seeing it in his mother's experience but living in canada he has to go back to discover who we act who he is and where he comes from. and it sounds like a you know an old story but it's it's so beautifully done oh wonderful so so yeah i mean it, it really is i know it's early on in the year but it, it's going to be right up there amongst the, the best films of this year i reckon don't you jackie it, it'll be there yeah yeah it'll be there uh peter yes that's me <laughs> are, you, are you sleeping like rice boy uh, no, I'm I'm just trying to uh, mitigate the noise because uh, I'm living near the Pride Parade happening in Fitzroy Street, St Kilda, and that's why all this noise is occurring right it's now. No, it's not because of that. You don't. You live without walls. We know. We know <laughs> truth. You, you're basically. It's like you're you're living in a Barbie movie in a Barbie world. Correct. It's exactly uh, Barbie. You're open to the elements. Are you accusing me of being a living doll? Uh, <laughs> Peter, if I ever accuse you of that, then men in, in white coats are going to cart me away. Yes. Um, but did you did you find this as moving as Jackie and I? It is. It's a beautifully made film. Uh, Anthony Sim has done a, a lovely job telling his own story. And the Korean lived experience of migration, which we've seen before in Minari, and of course in past lives, uh, seems to be a, a very strong subgenre of uh, Korean experience that we're now seeing in cinemas. And uh, Rice Boy Sleeps is is so well directed and 
uh, quietly observed, which is what I liked about it, and the racism and bullying and all that that happened in the 90s um, for the mother and for the boy in particular, um, uh, really um, evoked quite effectively. I also liked the way Shim used two aspect ratios in the film. He used the normal um, screen ratio for the Canadian shots, and the widescreen uh, and very colourful uh, shots for the Korean landscapes that we see um, early in the film and at the end. So uh, I, I think that resonates in terms of his own experience and wanting to, I suppose, relive uh, and enjoy his mother's Korean life, um, even though they're now in Canada. So a very impressive film, beautifully made, Yes, I certainly recommend it. What about you, Greg? It's a very interesting film about that cultural divide, isn't it? Um, the immigrant experience, that difficulty of fitting in, adjusting to a new culture, making friends in it. And it does explore this with insight and empathy. As, as you said, it's a very semi-autobiographical coming-of-age film from the Canadian filmmaker Anthony Shim there. Um, the early scenes show how hard it was for Sue Young to fit in, she works in a factory, but there she often suffers from sexual harassment from a couple of co-workers, and the boy suffers bullying at school, racism. He's mostly teased at school because of his looks, the strange Korean food he brings there, and he finds little support from the teachers who don't know how to pronounce his name, and he would suggest he change his name to something more anglicised. So, you know, all that racism comes out there. Then a decade later, it's no wonder he's an angry teenager, um, who finds life as an adolescent hard. Um, but also the fact that when he uh, asks his mother uh, about questions about his father, it's met with a silence, which doesn't help him. It adds to his um, frustration there. But then, as you said, when he went back to Korea, um, both mother and son reassess the relationship and form this strong bond. And that, as Jackie said, those final scenes are quite beautiful and movingly done. As Peter pointed out, I like the cinematography there. Especially the widescreen cinematography of Korea there, which was really beautiful and gave a sense of the location there, very evocative. And I thought Andrew Hoon Lee's score was also evocative, if a little melodramatic at times. Um, and this is a heartfelt drama that will certainly find a niche in the art house cinemas. No, very much so. Well, okay, so let's let's get some scores, and I think they're going to be reasonably high. So, Greg, start with you. Seven. I, seven for Rice Boy Sleeps. Okay. I, I, I thought much more highly of it. Uh, what about you, uh, Peter? Uh, I liked it. Eight out of ten. Right. Uh, and Jackie? Yes, and eight to eight and a half for yeah. the ice boys. And I'm giving it eight and a half. I really enjoyed it very, very much. So, yeah, okay, folks, that's a, it's a very nice way to start on Jair. First on Film and Entertainment, and we will move on to May, December. Now, I, I think that it's probably got more column centimetres than most international stories when when the scandalous story upon, well, what I should say, not what this is based on, it's inspired by, May, May December was inspired by this particular story. It's directed by Todd Haynes, who did Carol, and it's MA rated, it's 117 minutes. Now, it's the, the, the inspiration was the story of Mary Kay Latourneau, and she was the American teacher... 1997, she pleaded guilty to a couple of counts of felony second-degree rape of a child, namely her sixth-grade student, who was 12 years old at the time. 
and she was jailed from 1998 to 2004 and upon her release Latorno married the person that she was jailed for so may december's construct is that 20 years after similar couples notorious romance gripped the nation a film's about to be made outlining what went down so as i say starting point truth and then it's fictitious beyond that but it draws i dare say a lot on uh, the imagery that we've got in our heads of the mary Kayla tournay story so the star of the picture that is about to be made is an actress a television actress named elizabeth and that's a role filled by natalie portman and as part of her method acting before filming starts elizabeth reaches out to i'll just call her the scarlet woman involved whose name is gracie and gracie played by julianne moore and elizabeth spends time with gracie along with her husband it was the underage child she took advantage of a couple of decades earlier Elizabeth also spends time with the family and, and others involved. And her modus operandi is to really try to get to know Gracie and her mindset, what motivated her to do what she did, and, and how Gracie feels about that now. So Elizabeth also wants to get a read on on the husband, on Joe, Joe Yu, played by Charles Melton, his state of mind and that of their children and Gracie's children from a previous marriage. What are writing for really questions of consent, manipulation and vulnerability there's really a sinister edge to what we see even a couple of decades after the sensational goings-on gracie and joe's relationship is going to be tested again cracks will open up pressure is applied and elizabeth's moral compass also is going to come under scrutiny i reckon this is a film where patience is rewarded as the screws are tightened by the writer sammy birch who has done a fine job Nothing happens quickly, but there's no let up and, and as the heat sort of comes on. The unease, the distrust that Gracie has of Elizabeth's motive for being at home is immediately apparent. At various junctures thereafter, the pair bonds and disassociates. All the while, Elizabeth is studying Gracie's affectations, which she puts to good use in the final scene when filming of the movie being made starts. I thought that Portman was outstanding. Multi-layered performance. She immerses herself in the role of Elizabeth. She's natural. She's credible. And Julianne Moore as well excels. Often through her characterization, she appears to be playing with us. And I'm saying with us, the audience, in an endeavor to win our favor. I'm talking about Julianne Moore. But all too frequently, chinks in Gracie's armor appear. And that's a deliberate choice by the writer to move us one way and then the other. And for his part, Charles Melton is sensitive but stoic as Joe Yu. Marcello Zavos's compelling music bed ratches up the tension in many scenes. And the director, Todd Haynes, has a really good command of the subject matter, milks the dichotomies to ensure impact. I really like May, December more and more the longer it went. What about you, Greg? Uh, look, again, this is a quite interesting film there. Todd Hayes does this kind of thing quite well. He's really been a, a good director of female actresses there. Um, as a richly layered, melodramatic, but I thought del deliberately ambiguous character study as well there. But not only is it about the relationship between the two women, uh, the actress studying the other woman there, this also raises questions about the creative process. 
why does an actress take on um, a character like this? Why does she want to play someone that's not very likable or sympathetic there? And how does she go about preparing for such a challenging role? And there is that scene where Elizabeth ex explains her choice of roles and that to students in an acting class there. And the film's also dealing with themes of identity, how we see ourselves, because Grace doesn't see herself as a predator and Joe doesn't see himself as a victim. Um, so, you know, that's it, all a bit confusing here. But I thought it was really a bit too slow paced. I didn't draw me in as much as it did you, Alex, I think, there. Hmm. But both Portman and Moore are strong in their respective roles and Haynes slowly switched back that protective layer of his characters to depict him in a less than flattering light there. I thought Moore brought a, bit, a brittle quality of performance and as you said, Portman was really good there, brings a silly quality to her character. And Melton was really good as Joe, who still, still sees me in many ways, a naive youngster, um, and views his character with a touching vulnerability that captures his emotional turmoil. turmoil. Um, I thought it was a disturbing drama. It didn't provide a lot of easy answers there. But for me, it lacked any real great dramatic moments, and a deliberately languid pace meant a lack of urgency there. And as I said, it, it didn't draw me in as much as you do yeah. of Alex. Yeah, I mean, you remember, of course, the the news stories at the time, don't you? Very much so, Not don't really, you? No. No? Oh, wow. Okay. Well, Jackie, you would remember the story, surely? Uh, not necessarily, no. The Latorno? <laughs> I, I don't... No, no. Well, I, I, was, I mean, I followed it very closely, and I, I must admit I, I just saw it everywhere at the time. But anyway, what did you think of the, the movie May-December? Oh, I agree with you, Alex. I liked it more the uh, the longer it went on. And I think the main reason for that was to just detect how Natalie Portman, the actress, mm. played Elizabeth, an actress, Indeed. who was um, absorbing the character she was going to be playing and picking up on the nuances and the mannerisms and um, sort of just, you know, pushing her way into her life to find all the tiny details of the life. And, uh, you know, I, re I really think that everyone was surprised at how much she was kind of nosying in there, even to the way she put her makeup on and what makeup she mm -hmm. used. Yeah, and I thought it was Amazing. Oh, yeah. and and half of that, of course, was to get their faces in the mirror together yes. as yes. we see Elizabeth merging into this character. And and that's why I enjoyed it more, the more it went on because that built up. But I also, I liked some of the secondary characters were excellent in it, in their, you know, almost casual approach to their roles. But I thought the character of Joe was a really interesting one too. As Greg said, he was a bit of a boy a boy man, man child. <laughs> and didn't and it's he came to a point where because Elizabeth was there looking at the overview of how their lives had turned out and why this had happened to start with and digging right back down into that. When he was just a boy, I think a lot of this realization started things were just dawning on him. And um, it, I think it showed how powerful um, his wife had been to take over his life and put him, to seduce him and 
draw him into this. So, yes, I thought it was, uh, I, I just, I mean, it was a great story. I'm, I'm kind of glad it wasn't exactly the way the news story was at the time. It was, you know, fictionalised. And um, because I think it actually, if it had been much truer to the truth, it could have been a lot more distressing, I think. Because, yeah. you know, it was a crime, let's face well, it. Yeah, it's, it's, yeah. I mean, I still thought it was quite distressing, to be honest. I, I, in terms of what we see and what we witness throughout the entirety of the film and, you know, who, who's manipulating whom may be a question at the very beginning. But you, I mean, we're talking about a kid. We're talking about a, I can't, I don't, don't recall. Do you remember how old the child was in the film? I, I think he was, yeah, he was 13 in the film, but in real life, he was twer- being a real story. He was actually 12. Yeah, that's what I said. He, yeah. he was a friend of her son's. They, they, you know, worked at the pet shop something together. Mm. And again, wasn't that a great scene where Elizabeth went into the pet shop mm-hmm. to see where this had occurred so many years before, 23 years or something before? Yes. That was a, a, a extraordinary scene too. Uh, what about you, Peter? What did you think? I really like this film. I love uh, Todd Haynes's films because mm. he loves to deal with characters who don't quite fit our normal boundaries and uh, sort of uh, somewhat unusual or, or uh, on the edge. I mean, if you look at his films like Velvet Goldmine and Far From Heaven, Carol, as you've mentioned, I'm Not There, etc., he he really likes dealing with provocative and intriguing people and how some of them don't necessarily process the experiences that they've been through. And that certainly uh, is the case in in May-December, which um, is such a well-observed film, especially about uh, an actress who was trying to get into the mindset of a woman who did, um, uh, uh, I suppose, defeat justice to some extent uh, by having a relationship with an underage child and trying to understand what that was and the impact that had. I don't agree when you use the word sinister at one stage, Alex, to describe the way the story develops. I felt it was actually lighter than that and, uh, in fact, had some uh, semblance of humour in some of the dialogue and some of the well, observations. I, I still thought there was a sinister undercurrent. Jackie, what did you think? Um... Yes, but I do agree that the you know it, it kept getting lightened by the humour. There was some good dialogue and and um and also some of the little incidences, such as a little bit of um weed smoking on the roof and that sort of thing that were uh, you know really lightened light, light, light and shade. Yeah. Anyway, keep yeah. going, please. Yeah. No, I was just going to say, and the the film really uh its strength apart from the the way the the three main characters are trying to process everything that is going on in their lives and uh, uh is the final sequences which i won't spoil which really relay perhaps some of the um i don't know unusual aspects of the storyline and how some people just don't understand the impact that they have on other people and uh, in particular an actress trying to play a role and what that means for her mm-hmm. and for that uh, original relationship. So I very much liked uh, May, December. I, I think it's uh, uh, one of Todd Haynes' more accessible films and uh, uh, I notice it does have an Oscar nomination, So uh, except Charles Melton missed out. 
Well, I, yes, uh, and I would agree. It is one of his more accessible movies. Uh, so, look, let's get some scores, folks. Uh, MA rated, uh, May, December, 117 minutes. Greg, you'll be lowballing this, so where are you at with this? Yes, as I said, it didn't draw me in as much as you. I only gave it a 5 out of 10. Really? Wow. That's very low. Okay. Uh, I Well, I'll ask you, Jackie. Where are you with it? I was just going to also say May, December, in case people don't realise, refers to marriage between two people of different generations, one older, one younger, just out of interest. Oh, um, no. my, okay. yeah, my score for May, December, seven and a half out of ten. Mm-hmm. Peter? I really liked the film and I also gave it eight out of ten. And I gave it an eight out of ten as well. There we go. So that is May, December. Let us move on, Jay, 88FM, to uh, a movie which we were going to talk about a few weeks ago. And uh, I, I understand it's going to be a select film, but it's a very good film. It's called All of Us Strangers, and it's MA rated 105 minutes. And it's really sensitive. It's dramatic. It's a fantasy romance concerning a couple of lost souls. that They're sort of unbeknown to each other. They actually live in the same near-empty apartment block in London. And... I, I'm not quite clear on why it's near empty, by the way. Maybe somebody can explain that to me. One it's of you. Not, I said it's just been constructed. It didn't look that way to me. It looked, it I said it's up. just been apparently reading up. It's just. But they said that. Yeah. Okay. They, well, they said it had just been built and it wasn't, yeah. all the apartments weren't yet completed, so people hadn't moved in yet. Ah, okay. Fantastic. Well, one night a triggered fire alarm sees the screenwriter uh, or a screenwriter called Adam, played by Andrew Scott, evacuate the building temporarily. And he's by himself. He stares up. He, he sees only a single illuminated window. And framed against it is a, is a guy. And that man is Harry, Paul Mescal, who sees Adam looking up at him and later takes a chance by knocking on his door and introducing himself. Now, uh, here's my question, second question. How does he know which floor to go on? Does he, does he go downstairs and look up as well? I mean, how would you know where he lives? Any idea? Well, because the lift, the lift number, the floor number on the lift. Okay, fair enough. No, no, that's well. It, that's presuming they're the only two in the building. I, I which well, I they're not maybe the only two, but yeah, there are okay. very few in a very very large building. It's but, not important, Alex. No, 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 I'm just, I'm just, you know, the fine detail. That's all I'm asking. Oh, Both men are gay, but Harry's the more forward of the pair, and after an initial false start, that connection is cemented and a relationship develops between them. Still, both both have endured trauma, isolation as well. And, and in Adam's case, uh, who's the original guy I spoke about, bullying. And Adam's struggling to deal with the passing of his parents 30 years ago when he was only 12. He imagines himself reconnecting with his mum, played by Claire Foy, and his dad, Jamie Bell. And... This is reconnecting in the house where they grew up. And in this movie, although he, Adam, has not aged, his parent sorry, has aged rather, let me re- restate that, although Adam has aged since obviously he was 12 and now he's 42, his parents haven't. And Adam's warmly welcomed back into their lives. He sets about answering their questions as to what's happened in the intervening decades. That process also reveals a disconnect between Adam and and his parents back in the day. Harry also is hiding a deep-seated need, I might say, and it's, this is based on a novel by Teichi Yamada, and it's been written, all of us strangers, 
and is directed by Andrew Haig, who did Lean On Pete. It's slow burn, it's reflective, it's mysterious, and it's very, very well realised. Events unravel in their own sweet time. Patience is rewarded. I thought Andrew Scott was superb. He really plays this caring and considered character as the troubled lead, and it's this heartfelt performance as well. Much of it is deliberately left unsaid. Paul Mescal has layers to his characterisation as well. He imbues Harry with passion and vulnerability. Claire Foy brings wonderment and humour to her representation of a mother who knows she could have given more. And then there's internal wrestle within Jamie Bell as he tackles dad's past inadequacies. So uh, it's the second time I've used this term. Uh, First time was with regards to another character. This one, Oliver Strangers, is is strong on emotional resonance. And it, it pinpoints the importance of breaking down barriers and letting others in. So I reckon Andrew Hague's imbued a film with a great deal of sensitivity. What did you think, Jackie? Oh, Peter. Sorry, let's start with Peter. <laughs> okay, Andrew Haig is uh, such an interesting filmmaker because uh, his his own gay experience uh, is sort of reflected to some extent in All of Us Strangers. When he saw the Japanese novel, which was uh, heterosexual in orientation, uh, plus the the uh, time travel and fantasy elements and the idea of a uh, of someone wanting to revisit their past in a particular dreamlike way he changed that to being a gay story and and there is so much resonance in the way the two lead characters uh, Mescal and Scott develop their roles but especially about Scott and his um, traveling back to his parents uh, experience and how he wasn't able to really reveal that he was gay or or at least it wasn't treated uh, as being something that was uh, appropriate and and um although mother was more sympathetic than uh, the father um and it's this whole notion of acceptance of love and of um uh, understanding the past and coming to grips with uh, a heritage that you're trying to understand yourself um overlaid by this sort of fantasy elements which uh, play out uh, as the film progresses. Uh, I was very impressed by All of Us Strangers. I know it has multiple BAFTA nominations Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, it is quite a powerful film which uh, fits in the canon of films that deal with gay characters trying to understand and come to grips with their relationship to society. So, yes, very impressive film. Gregory King. Yes. Um, this is probably um, got a lot in common with Andrew Haig's earlier film, Weekend, about um, two gay guys meeting over a weekend and developing that relationship there as well. So it has a, a bit in common with that film as well. Um, the ghost story sort of isn't quite obvious what's happening for quite a while there, I thought. No, it's no. taking a while to get into that, that part of it there and travelling backwards and forwards. Um, but it's got an ethereal, lyrical, sensitive um, nuances to it there. Um, and it's also about um, connection, relationships, family, loss and trauma. So it deals with some weighty themes there, um, the past, memories and regrets there, um, and clear identity. And the fact that um, the parents died in the 80s, I think, brings in all that elements of, you know, the homophobia, the um, fear of AIDS, all that kind of stuff, which sort of uh, there in the background. 
But it's as Peter pointed out, I think this is a deeply personal and idiosyncratic film from Haig there, and it's full of raw, raw emotions and honesty there, and it's probably his best film to date there. Uh, and the performances were all very good. Um, Paul Mescal's had a great year this year. I think what, yeah. This is his fourth film, I think. Is that um, right? What, well, hang on. What are the... Okay. After Sun, Carmen, and... Um, Another one. Oh, okay, After Sun is the one that stands out for me. Uh, yeah. I've got to say that well, that was a phenomenal film. Well, Jackie, you didn't like After Sun, did you? No, no, I wasn't. It wasn't. I, it wasn't my favourite. No. No, no. But, I thought there was great chemistry between the two leads there as well that adds to the film. Um, Paul, Paul Miskal brought back a racist, had a racist charm to his character that hides that personal pain you mentioned there, um, and. Um, I thought Andrew Scott was great, giving you that troubled, haunted quality to Adam there. Um, and I thought Bell was also really good there, a mature, honest, subtly emotionally charged performance there. And the eerie, bluish, tinged cinematography from Jamie Ramsey also plays into that ghostly aesthetic, giving it a bit of a dreamlike quality at times there. Um, and the music choices um, from the 80s there, particularly that Frankie Goes to Hollywood, Jimmy Somerville, The Pet Shop Boys, Informed the film's themes and steepers in that 80s vibe as well, gives something of a melancholy edge to the material. Yeah, very much so. Well, what about you, Jackie? Did you appreciate it? Um, so far, it's my film of the year. Oh my golly. I was absolute, in fact, I'm, I'm almost breaking down even just talking about this film. Wow. I just thought it was absolutely stunning. In the way it was done, the story that it told, it could have misfired badly. We talk about dream sequences and grief and ghost story and love story, gay story, resurrection and the time slips and and all of that. It it could have gone so badly, Mm. but I thought it was exquisite in every aspect from the characters to the cinematography, the ghostliness of it, the the tension and the and and the times of warmth, the reconnection with his parents. Um, just love, love, love this film. Wow. Okay. So well let's um I, I'm I'll start. I'll I'll give it uh, all of us strangers, MA rated 105 minutes. I'm giving it an eight out of ten. Greg? Seven. Seven, Peter? A uh, very impressive film, nine out of ten from me. Wow, and Jackie? I'll go the whole hog. Really? Wow. Mm, ten okay. out of ten. Okay. All of the strangers. Well, I recommend it. Well, so it's it, it's not, it can't be beaten now for film of the year. I know. Well, I mean, it'd be uh, if there are other other films that get that score. I didn't score. I don't think I scored any film ten out of ten last year. Oppenheimer. What did you give it? I think I probably gave it nine to nine and a half. I don't think I gave it a 10. Anyway, I can't quite remember. But anyway, just all that aside, all of us strangers completely, completely enveloped me. And um, I, I, it, it, very heartfelt and it was just beautiful. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it was certainly a very powerful film. No, no question about that. All right. Well, look, let's um, let's move on to our last film of the day which is Force of Nature, The Dry 2. And we're talking M rating, 112 minutes. Federal police have a financial services firm squarely in their sights. 
uh, they've put the hard word on on one of the employees to help bring down this particular firm. And that's the contention in the dry too with Detective Aaron Falk, played by Eric Banner, returning from the dry in 2020 to do much of the heavy lifting. And he and his partner, a detective called Carmen Cooper, Jacqueline McKenzie, are squeezing Alice. This is the employee, played by Anna, Anna Torv. She has deep insider knowledge of the workings of the company. She's profited from the dirty dealings. And so the authorities have Alice over a barrel. The last piece of the puzzle is the dangerous task of downloading data, which Alice is reluctant to undertake because she fears being caught, caught within the firm. But Detective Four will not take no for an answer. So the noose is tightening. The day before Alice is due to go on a team bonding exercise deep into the Victorian bush. And she does that. And that's when the whole case against the firm and specifically its boss, Daniel Bailey, played by Richard Roxburgh, looks like unravelling. That's because Alice goes missing. So bad weather's about to set in. A search involving Victoria Police and the two detectives I've mentioned, Detective Fork and Cooper, uh, there's, a, there's a search that's launched. And this short getaway that uh, the... Alice and others have taken also brings into focus for the four other women in the company, all of whom have taken the trip. And they struggle with Alice's belligerent nature. They've got issues of their own as well. You could hardly call them happy campers because the group, group becomes lost. So mobile phones have been taken from them because this is a commune with nature type experience. Alice manages to smuggle one in, but it's really no help because there's hardly any reception. And the bush setting is also triggering for Detective Fork. He knows the area well. It's where he and his parents came when he was a boy. So a lot of detail in the plotting in the dry two, including a significant red herring. And it does require a bit of concentration to follow. Behind it, no shortage of pent-up anger and angst and emotion. So it's a thriller that unfolds in three time frames. You've got the present, the immediate past, and the distant past. And the writer and the director is Robert Connolly, and his work's based on a novel by Jane Harper. The setting, the cinematography by Andrew Comis from Blue, he did Blueback. I thought it was magnificent. Real picture postcard material. Uh, it's fantastic. Very proud shot in Victoria. All right, tension raised by Peter Rayburn, who was responsible for music in the try to score, uh, is certainly raised in the score as well. Eric Banner, well, very solid. He always is as the film's hero, Detective Fork. This is a deeply personal case for him. Richard Roxburgh brings arrogance and entitlement to the head of the financial enterprise, Daniel Bailey, and some of that rubs off on his wife, Jill, played by Deborah Lee Finesse, Ness, with whom he has a prickly relationship. Anna Torv had a, well, she's got a no-compromise approach to her realisation of Alice, and Robin McLeavy is troubled as Alice's subjugated and poorly treated old school friend and colleague, Lauren. Then you've got Sissy Stinger, who revels in her bad girl persona as another employee called Beth, and Lucy Ansell plays her naive, good-natured sister, Bree. Now, for all of these positives, I, I reckon you've got to have a leap of, leap of faith to swallow a key component of the narrative. It seems mighty implausible that a group of women without any form of communication to the outside world would simply be let loose in a dense forest. Just didn't make a lot of sense to me. But um, And some of the scenes, I'm sorry look decidedly amateurish. And that includes the opening when Alice disappears and then, uh, and you know, women are crying out. And then, then when she twists her ankle 
they're just a couple that really stood out for me as looking, you know, below par. But overall, I, I was invested in the journey. I, I, as I say, admire the location. It's a, it's a decent film. I don't think it's as good as the original Dry, but um, it's okay. What about you, Jackie? No, it's not okay, Alex. Wasn't no, no. okay at all. Most of it was below par, Alex. Yeah. It was it was it was a TV episode. You know, it it just didn't it it just didn't have the right tone. And the the narrative. I mean, you say a leap of faith. Honestly, the plot holes were none of it made sense. I did not believe it from the start. I mean, an office team building exercise where the women go off including two sisters why would you put two sisters in a t it just uh, it just doesn't and and when Alice falls back uh, and bumps her head she had a backpack on how could you I, it just like it was just full of holes it okay. did not work for me at all fair enough Greg King this is more like an Agatha Christie mystery than the, the original drive there with the gallery of suspects here, but none of those women were really likeable or pleasant people. Um, you couldn't care less about them, really. <laughs> uh, they looked beautiful, though. The shooting, the scenery of oh. shot the Otways and that by Andrew Comish was beautifully done there and just sort of showed how nature can dwarf um, human characters there. But, yeah, for me, this is only an average film. Yeah. What about you, Peter? Anything better than that? I really like this film and... Uh, oh. And I had a, a, a chat to Robert Connolly about it, and, uh, and did, that the, did that influence your like? Did it or uh, did, did no? It... No, I, I wanted to know more about the background to the film, and and he he said it was based very strongly on Jane Harper's follow up novel to The Dry, and uh, and especially the, dealing with leeches and everything in the Dandenong Ranges and so on. The filming was uh, was quite uh, <laughs> um, quite difficult at times, but no, I think. I, I'm finding a little bit of sexism here in this review from some of you because if this was a group of men who go out on a, a team bonding exercise and uh, issues happen and so on, we would accept it and not question it at all. No, but no, 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 I'm sorry. No, not at all. No. The fact is that they didn't have any communication. They didn't have a walkie-talkie. They didn't have anything. I, 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 I don't care whether it's men, women or, 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 or German. Anything's. German guinea pigs, yeah, that it, it doesn't matter. I mean, it's kind of like it's like no, no, it's like going out into the ocean without any any perb. What what what's it called? An eye perb or whatever. You you don't do that sort of thing. You you, you tell people where you're going. You have some, you know. And Liz deleted a Zebra Lee Furnace character should have had some sort of communication device back. Yeah, huge leader, huge team leader. Yes, agreed. There you go, Peter. You've been found out. I'm sorry, I disagree with all of those comments because this was a very special sort of environment and situation that these women placed themselves in and uh, with the overlaying tension of uh, what was going on externally. And I thought non-communication with the outside world was a key part of it. And, uh, and I like the way the plot develops. Um, especially the uh, the twist at the end. Look, uh, and it's an all-Australian cast, which is fantastic to see. Yes, um, an all-Australian cast does... I'm sorry, we cannot give plaudits just because it's an all-Australian cast. You've got to view this against all the other movies that are out there. And I know it's being heavily produced, and I didn't mind it, right? But I, I, I don't think we give a, a pass just because it's an American-Australian cast. Who's we? Um... <laughs> 
<laughs> I, I, I love the way you, you have an, an assumption about a view of a film that um, that you don't accept and uh, if someone else has a different view. And, and I was impressed by this film as I was watching it and I liked the way it developed. Uh, I think it's a, a very effective follow-up to the dry uh, the first one, and Eric Banner and the rest of the cast, uh, and Deborah Lee Furness in particular, are just superb in the film. I really liked it. Okay. Um, yes. Well, I, I, I didn't, I didn't mind it, but I didn't think I, I, you, you didn't see the amateurish acting. You didn't see any of that, Peter. No, I did not, oh, and I God. dispute that completely. Uh, I, I think there was some amateurish elements. Did you see that, Jackie? Amateurish. Oh, look, I usually really like Eric Banner. I think he really lifts a film. But in this case, I thought he was just wooden and he just flagged his, you know, he signalled what was going on with his stares and his frowns and his... Oh, really? No, I, I thought he was signed. Oh, I, I didn't have oh, a problem with him. I had a problem with some I, of the... I, well, I did with everyone, but I was most disappointed with his oh. because normally I, I, you know, I'm a big fan. So, look, I think I'll give the second highest score, Peter, after all of that, right? But so I think the lowest will be Jackie. Go for it. I don't even like the title. Force of Nature, The Dry 2. Yeah, yeah. Oh, I just don't even like the title. Three out of ten. Three out of ten. There you go, Peter. Yeah. Uh, not like. Greg? Six out of ten. Seven out of ten for me, Peter. 17 out of ten. Go on, what is it? <laughs> the title is Jane Harper's, for goodness sake. And uh, Give us a um, score. Give us a score. Does it mean not like it because of that? No, uh, I know, but uh, w- welcome to the holdovers. Anyway, uh, we won't go there either. Oh, <laughs> Jackie, Jackie, I reckon you, but you've got to go and see the holdovers again. You really do. Oh. I give Force of Nature seven out of ten. Okay, so it's the same score as me. You said you really liked it, and then I you, then you mark it down to seven. This should be eight or nine, surely. Seven is a good score. Uh, okay, mm, right. Folks, Luckily, been... I brought the average down. Gosh. <laughs> it's, it's been a pleasure. Thank you very much, folks. Uh, we'll do it all again next week, first on film and entertainment.